We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick an obscure topic and walk you through the ins, outs, and nitty-gritty. So you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... QAnon Part 2. What is QAnon? Well, it's a massive conspiracy theory movement that began in 2017 and purported that there was a secret insider in the U.S. military, known only as Q, leaking information through internet image boards like 4chan and 8chan about how then-President Donald Trump was secretly working behind the scenes to topple a hidden cabal of satanic, pedophilic, baby-eating villains, largely comprised of Democrats, celebrities openly critical of Trump, wealthy Jewish business owners, and entrepreneurs like George Soros and the Rothschilds. In the last episode, we did a complete deep dive into the Pizzagate conspiracy and how it directly led to the creation of QAnon. However, there is a much darker and deeper lineage to the true origins of QAnon. A history of anti-Semitism, erosion of trust in the government, and a slow shift in the very nature of truth and reality. We'll learn that the key beliefs held amongst QAnon believers existed long before the internet, tracking back over hundreds of years, and that the advent of social media only helped to focus and amplify something that's been bubbling under the surface of American society for decades. One man was missing, and the first thing what came to the Gentile mind was, it was the time before Passover, that the Jews had killed that man, and they used the blood for matzis, and this was absurd. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. It is time to reawaken this industrial giant. Uh, with the Secretary General, we discussed uh, particularly developments in the Middle East. I briefed him about the status of our step-by-step approach. We paid particular attention to the negotiations on Cyprus, which started uh, two days ago. Does it understand what it's doing in the sense that we do? It's easy to leap to false conclusions, as Professor Weizenbaum discovered when he created ELISA. ELISA is a computer program that anyone can converse with via the keyboard and it'll reply on the screen. The computer's replies seem very understanding, but this program is merely triggered by certain phrases to come out with stock responses. <laughs> Fellow Americans, at 7 o'clock this evening, Eastern Time, air and naval forces of the United States launched a series of strikes against the headquarters, terrorist facilities, and military assets that support Muammar Gaddafi's subversive activities. The attacks were concentrated and carefully targeted 
to minimize casualties among the Libyan Bahama and your father, Hafez al-Assad. Uh, he ruthlessly set out to eliminate the Muslim Brotherhood. Are you simply being your father's son here? I don't know what you mean by ruthlessly. Because you know what uh, happened at Hama? I've never heard the war, a soft war. Have you heard about soft war? There's no soft war. War is war. Any war is ruthless. And when you fight terrorists, you fight them like any other war. Fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. It is so comforting to people to say there was an error made in the planning. Someone didn't spot what was going to go on. But in reality, even if you've taken different decisions on those things, that is not what has created the problem. Mr. Gaddafi, thanks very much for seeing us. It's nearly seven o'clock in the evening here. There are large areas of this country which you don't control anymore. What are you going to do about all of that? <laughs> well, what is the question? A declaration of the independence of cyberspace. Governments of the industrial world you weary giants of flesh and steel, I come from cyberspace. You are not welcome among us. You have no sovereignty. Cyberspace, when you invented it, didn't exist. But now it's 30 years later and cyberspace is all around us. I think of cyberspace as uh, a, a piece of legacy terminology. That's because I also think of the real world as a piece of legacy terminology. One reason is that uh, scientific studies have shown that even though it's hard to delete your accounts, when you do, you get happier, you get more productive, you have more time. What's amazing is that just this one technology seems to have made every layer of life worse. We need somebody that literally will take this country and make it great again. Ladies and gentlemen, I am officially running for President of the United States, and we are going to make our country great again. Act 2, Blood Libel, Hypernormalization, and the Great Betrayal of the Internet. Or, if a conspiracy theorist falls for anti-Semitic tropes, but there's nobody around to make them see, does that still make them a Nazi? A theory that involves elite Democrats and wealthy Jewish magnates drinking the blood of children and consuming their bodies as part of satanic rituals sounds like a very extreme, radical narrative that could only be cooked up by the bored and depraved minds of 4chan. However, the concept is hardly a product of the internet age, and has actually existed for hundreds of years. And as a matter of fact, much like you might think that the Star Wars movies are wholly unique creations cut out of whole cloth by George Lucas, only to discover that they're essentially a mashup of multiple radio adventure serials from the 1930s and Japanese samurai films from the 1950s with a 1970s science fiction paint job. QAnon is just a remix of every single anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that's existed throughout the ages. And it's all rooted in the blood libel. Blood libel is a centuries-old claim that Jews secretly abduct and murder Christian children in order to use their blood in satanic rituals. It dates back to the Middle Ages and has led to mob violence, pogroms, and the genocide of entire Jewish communities. Can we pause there for just, as a, just a second and say that both you and I are of Jewish heritage. Neither of us believe in these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. But that is an awesome idea. Like, I'm so all about crazy cults 
And the term blood libel is kind of a cool name. Like, I'm just saying. Like, it's kind of a cool name. Yeah, it's pretty metal. It's pretty, like... Yeah. It's the name of a King Diamond album, for sure. Yeah, like... Blood libel! (laughs) We will go into the villages and take our retribution! Blood libel! Obviously, we, we both know that these conspiracy theories and, and anti-Semitic strains of thought come from xenophobia and come from fear of people who are unlike what we perceive ourselves to be. But the idea of like abducting Christian children and using their blood to summon demons is kind of fucking awesome. I mean, you want to do some blood libel? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Dave Baker. I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Blood Libel. Blood Libel! <laughs> okay, okay, just again, for the record, we're both Jewish. We're both Jewish. We're not anti-Semites. We might be whatever the opposite of anti-Semite is, where we're just, we're so into it that we're just like, yeah, you fucking murder those Christian children. I'll watch. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a blood cuck, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> a bluck. <laughs> Andrew Bluck Price. Would you say that you're fully blucked right now? I'm full blucked. The first ever recorded incident of a blood libel occurred in 12th century Norwich, England. The body of a young boy named William was discovered in the woods, and a local monk accused the town's Jews of being responsible for the murder. The claim was largely not believed in the town, but a small following of people held on to it and continued propagating it. Eventually, people of the time began to believe that Jewish leaders of the world would all agree on a country and town each year to abduct a Christian child, murder them, and drink their blood. The monk that had made the accusation, Thomas of Monmouth, began to devote his entire life to propagating the idea that William had been ritualistically sacrificed by Jews, promoting the church where William had been buried as a site of pilgrimage. He eventually ended up writing a manuscript titled The Life and Passion of William of Norwich, which served as a fictional retelling of how the town's Jews had abducted and killed William. Is that kind of like a xenophobic sunk cost fallacy where you're like you're being kind of uh, you're being pushed out of your, your local middle ages grocery store? You know, people aren't giving you that good middle ages Wi-Fi and they're like, bro, you got to fucking get out of here. You're weird and you hate Jews. It's not cool. And you're like, no, 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 no. They are the bad guys. My whole life is this now. Yeah. Based on this random, he's like, yeah, he was, I mean, he really was kind of like a, a middle age, a middle ages grifter. Like he just, he, la- he, he was just a monk. He's the middle. No, dude, you know what he is? He's the middle ages Alex Jones. Is he, he started living the kayfabe to the degree where he couldn't separate it from his own identity. And then he just became. A, the father of modern anti-Semitism. Well, that, you know, that's actually interesting. I know, I know you kind of like just said that as a joke, but it, it actually brings up an interesting thought, which is that I think I hear a lot when you, when you talk about grifters, um, a lot, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the social media grifters that exist in our, in our current world. Um, and I'm talking about whether it's QAnon grifters or like Gary V type people. I'm here in my garage with my Lamborghinis. Q himself, there's controversy over being able to call him a grifter because he doesn't make any money from ostensibly whoever Q is or whatever, whoever, whomever the people are that are Q don't actually make any money from it, ostensibly, unless there's some back channel thing that they're doing. Even the theory that Jim and Ron Watkins are Q, they don't make money from 
from 8chan. They they lose money from 8chan. So it's there, there's all this controversy of they're not grifters or Gary V isn't a grifter because he just gives information and doesn't act and he doesn't charge for any of it. And he there's nothing he doesn't have a paywall and all these things. He just wants to help people. And the thing that I that immediately bumps me about anytime anybody says that, and these aren't even like defenders or apologists for QAnon or Gary V. These are people who are critical of these people. They're uncertain about the semantics of referring to them as grifters because they're not monetizing these things at all. And the thing that always sticks out to me is it doesn't require that you want to make money from something in order for you to be a grifter, in my opinion, in my mind. Especially now, because so much of our social currency is tied up with clout and internet ubiquity. Yeah, you be, people, like in, in many ways, wanting money out of these situations is almost like the the fucking bush league version of it because it's like who gives a fuck about money right now who gives a fuck about selling merchandise or classes or whatever you're cashing in for power consolidated clout and attention it's a drug it's a literal drug getting attention on the internet gives you an infusion of dopamine that you become addicted to um, and, and this I, I think it's interesting because it's like thomas of monmouth and this whole thing where he had Suddenly he made this accusation and then he just like 180 his his monk life to become monastically dedicated to this story that the, this William kid was killed by Jews that nobody believed. And yet he was like, no, it's so true that I'm going to just become the fucking bard of it or or whatever. Y- you know, you can you can even you can peer back through the era and still understand why he would do something like that. So, you know, looking back on Thomas of Monmouth, you can sort of even after all this time, you can look back and kind of see why he would have done something like this. And it's almost kind of like nearly the exact same motivation as any conspiracy theory influencer person would have now, which is he said this thing, he got a bunch of attention for it. And he liked it, even if it wasn't necessarily positive attention. He liked people listening to what he was saying, even if it was just to even if it was to say he was wrong. He 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 got off on being part of the conversation. And then he was like, oh, I don't want to go back to my life of quiet solitude, you know, transcribing the Bible one copy at a time or whatever the fuck I'm doing. I want to continue getting this this attention for these, you know, inflammatory things that I'm saying. So I'm going to just change my life to become about this, which is interesting because it's just it's exactly why people do things now. Look, Tommy Mon Mon, we know you're a monk. We know you're making illuminated manuscripts. We know you got one of those weird bowl cuts with the top turned off. We know you're out here in Friar Tuck lifestyle. You you could get out, man. You could just not be a monk. You don't got to live that monk life. If you want to go fuck somebody, you can go fuck somebody. You don't need to be like, the Jews! Like, it's cool, bro. It's cool. God is love, baby. God is love. I know this is the Middle Ages and you think God is, like, all angry and, like, brimstone and, like, flooding the earth and all that shit. Like, that's cool. But, like, what if you just, like, hung out and, like, got a blowjob? I think you'd probably be a lot happier and you'd probably say the, the words, it was the Jews, a lot less. Like, th- there's actually a mathematical equation called the Monmouth Principle where it's one blowjob is equal to negative 150 it was the Jews's. Throughout the Middle Ages, this myth grew stronger. Anytime a Christian child went missing in any town, the local Jews were likely blamed, and they were usually rounded up and tortured until they erroneously admitted to the crime. 
Historical scholars believe that as many as a hundred blood libels occurred between the 12th and 16th centuries, many of which resulted in the massacre of Jews. The blood libel waxed and waned throughout the years afterward, but came back in 1171 when Jews in Blois, France were accused of murdering a local child and burned at the stake for it, even though no actual child had been reported missing and no body had been found. Which kind of reminds me of how this is the thing that frequently happens. There's been multiple cases of it. And in fact, John McCain's wife did this. But people will see like a black woman with like a white child at the airport. And they, you know, they at the airport, they have all those signs that are like, if you see something, say something. And they have those numbers of like report suspicious activity. And people are constantly putting in calls to a uh, uh, a, um, on like interracial families where it's just like a black parent with a white child. It happens all the time. And, uh, John McCain's wife did it and she, and, and like she, she called and they investigated it and they're like, Oh no, this is just, this is just an interracial mother and child. But she still went on a news program and said that she had stopped a attempted child traffic. But it's just like people, it's like these moral panics and then people will just like rat on each other, oftentimes for literally nothing. In 1235, 34 Jews were executed in Fulda, Germany after five children burned to death in their home while their parents were at church. Twelve years later, the Jews of Valriat in southern France were tortured and executed after being accused of extracting the blood from a two-year-old girl named Maya during Holy Week. The blood libel persisted into modern times. In 1840, members of the Damascus Jewish community were charged with kidnapping and killing a Christian priest who had disappeared. Several notable Jews from Damascus were tortured to extract confessions, and an angry mob destroyed a synagogue and its Torah scrolls. Blood libels continued even into the 20th century as well. In 1913, a Ukrainian Jew named Menachem Mendel Belis was charged with ritually killing a Christian child whose body was discovered near a local brick factory in Kiev. During a sensational trial, numerous respected Russian intellectuals and scholars testified that Jews attacked Christians and used their blood in obscene rituals. Ultimately, Belize was acquitted of the charges, but not before horrific anti-Semitic claims were repeated and broadcast throughout Russia. A blood libel even occurred in Messina, New York in 1928. When a four-year-old girl went missing from her home, a rumor spread that local Jews had kidnapped and killed her. Crowds gathered outside Messina's police station where the town's rabbi had been summoned. A state trooper questioned the rabbi and asked him whether Jews offered human sacrifices or used blood in rituals. The girl was eventually found alive and unharmed. As fucked up as that is, it's kind of funny to me the idea of the, the cops being like, uh, hey, rabbi, um, so do you guys, do you guys do this? So like, what's the deal? Like, we're, you know, I'm the good cop. I'm the good cop. I'm here. I'm your friend. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, just a normal upstanding citizen. You could just tell me. You could just tell me. He's just trying to good good cop him into admitting it but yeah it's just it's just funny to me because it's like if this were true why would he be like yes we do this like why would he admit it hey rabbi you ever notice that like blood tastes like pennies you ever notice that but like like not like you know you just like put your you know you cut your finger and you put it in your mouth and you're like oh it kind of tastes like pennies but, like when you're drinking like goblets of blood like it just tastes like drinking pennies right isn't that weird you ever notice that blood tastes like pennies uh yes i mean it's because of the uh the iron content in the blood it, it makes sense ha how would you know that blood libel blood libel somewhere along the way came the creation of a book called the protocols of the elders of zion a book that claims to be a secret text written by jews about their plans for global domination Portions of the book were published in 1903 in a Russian newspaper called Zenamia, or The Banner. 
claiming to have been written decades prior and disseminated out to readers under the guise that it was an actual accounting of an attempt by Jews to take over the world that had somehow been leaked to the public. The full standalone book was first published in Russia in 1905 as an appendix to The Great and the Small, The Coming of the Antichrist and the Rules of Satan on Earth by Russian writer and mystic Sergei Nilus. That's a fucking dope title. Yeah, I mean, you, you you can't deny their ability at naming things badass metal shit. Yeah, like the great and the small. The great and the small! The coming of the Antichrist and the rules of Satan on Earth! Rules of Satan on Earth! The funny thing to me about a lot of uh about a lot of christian iconography and i i even thought this as a kid when i like fully believed this stuff it's funny to me that like the antichrist obviously is not satan right i mean it is satan but he's not he's a separate entity that's going to take over the world but it's just kind of bad world building that your villain is an iterative design scheme off of your hero you know what i mean like you want a divergent design scheme for your villain to draw out the primary aspect of your uh, hero. Like for Batman, he's all about order and reason. And so the Joker is not themed around a bat, themed about a non sequitur thing, a playing card, a Joker, a clown. And it, he's he's themed around the chaos of, of society, right? Um, but, ba- but Baby Bakes, Lil Davy Breadsticks. I can't believe I have to, I can't believe I'm even saying this to you. What about Bizarro Superman or Reverse Flash? Bizarro Superman is, is a villain. He is not Superman's arch enemy. Uh, he, he is not. Lex Luthor is Superman's arch enemy. Uh, but even Lex Luthor is not called anti-Superman. You know what I mean? He's a, it's a specific character trait or it's a specific name. He's a person. He's, he's the anti-idea of Superman and that he's a, a, a human whose will is that he is ascending to greater things where Superman is an alien who's attempting to will himself to be human. The Antichrist is a poorly named character is all I'm saying. The reverse flash, the reverse flash is a good, um, a good example, but I think I would, I think I would politely say that the rogues as a group are the Flash's villain. Like they, he doesn't have like a definitive arch enemy. He has a group of bad guys that he goes against. It's not like Batman or Superman or even like the Phantom with the the Brotherhood, uh, the Sing Brotherhood, the pirates that he fights. Yeah, it's like when you're just the polar opposite, if your character is defined by I am the opposite of you, I am the anti-you, if you have a divergent worldview, then you can get into these these debates, these escalating back and forth tete-a-tetes. When you're just the opposite, then like the only thing you can say when somebody's like, I think this, all you can just, all you can do is just be like, nope. <laughs> yeah. That it, it puts you at this like binary where the you can only just know them like you can only just deny what they're saying yeah like magneto and professor x are two ends of an ideological spectrum but magneto is not just professor z you know what i mean he's not just or professor a (laughs) substitute teacher a like he's not just a carbon uh i'm going to exist in relief of you he's his own developed character with a internal mythology and a backstory and a compelling motivation where Antichrist is just a shitty name for a villain, you know? Call that bitch Lucifer Jr. You know what I mean? Like, like there's tons of cool names and iconography in the Bible for that you could use for the Antichrist, but the issue at hand is that the, the internal mythology of 
um, the Bible is that the Antichrist will be a real person. So it's this catch-22 where like you're writing fiction that's supposed to be predictive of reality where you are giving a label to a person who will at some point be a real human being, but you need to make that open-ended label malleable enough so you can fit any of your ideological opponents into that label without it being uh noticeably false so like he is the antichrist is both a character and a prediction which is why it's slightly different than the conversation that we're having about like it's kind of a it is a shitty character name because it is both a character name and also a title of someone who's going to exist in the real world although the exact origin of the protocols is unknown its intent was to portray jews as conspirators against the state Following the Russian Revolution of 1917, anti-Bolshevik emigres brought the protocols to the West. Soon after, editions circulated across Europe, the United States, South America, and Japan. An Arabic translation first appeared in the 1920s. Beginning in 1920, auto-magnate Henry Ford's newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, published a series of articles based in part on the protocols. The International Jew, the book that included this series, was translated into at least 16 languages. Both Adolf Hitler and Joseph Goebbels, later head of the propaganda ministry, praised Ford and the International Jew. In actuality, it was a fictional book pieced together from various sources. Some of them satirical texts meant to criticize the rampant anti-Semitism that existed at the time, and some written by anti-Semites themselves pretending to be Jews. The protocols had been copied in large part from a French political satire that never mentioned Jews. Maurice Jolie's dialogue in hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu. One chapter of a Prussian novel, Hermann Gaetsch Biarritz, also quote-unquote inspired the protocols. It was a Frankenstein's monster of fabricated information put together for the explicit purpose of tricking the world into thinking that Jews were evil. I never knew that. I never knew that it was um, basically like a bunch of satire cobbled together and then like massaged in order to paint a specific portrait. That's fascinating to me. And deeply hilarious and horrifically depressing at the same time. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's, 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 you know, it was literally just somebody went around just picking and choosing random anything that worked to fit into putting together into this volume to present out of context as a real thing. So they just, they just kind of picked and chose things that they, that they, uh, thought would work for it, which is, which is interesting because, you know, obviously it's just horrific that this thing where somebody just took these satirical articles out of context and presented them as a real thing to try to paint this picture that Jews were evil. But also it's kind of funny and kind of pathetic that they did do that because they wanted to, they wanted to tell this story and present this, but they weren't creative enough to just write it themselves like they were just they wanted to make up this fake thing and so they had to just go around cherry picking all these random things to piece together because they weren't creative enough to just write a fake document of the Jewish global plot to take over the world. Hitler was introduced to the protocols in the early 1920s and it had a large part in shaping his worldview. He continued on throughout his political career referencing back to the claims of the protocols and referenced the book in many of his early speeches. The Nazi party published at least 23 editions of the protocols between 1919 and 1939. Following the Nazi seizure of power in 1933, some schools used the protocols to indoctrinate students. And to this day, the book is still heavily used to fuel conspiracy theories. Much of the basis of the QAnon movement, whether the people involved realize it or not, is based on the protocols, an anti-Semitic hoax book published by liars. And, you know, normally we would read parts of something, but there's something about that that it just makes me feel deeply uncomfortable. So I, I don't really I don't really want to read parts of the protocols. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And also, we have so much to discuss. And while it is important that we include this lineage of anti-Semitism in conspiracy th- circles, that's not really what we're here to do. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now flashing forward in time, with a long history of these kinds of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories taking hold of people, a sequence of events would begin to unfold in the United States that would eventually prime our nation's vulnerable population into clinging to another mishmash of anti-Semitic garbage. This next section is largely based on the excellent avant-garde political documentary Hypernormalization by Adam Curtis, which I would highly recommend everyone watches. Normally, I wouldn't structure a part of the show so closely off of another work, but the documentary so specifically encapsulates the sequence of events that led us to where we are today politically, ideologically, and societally in such a direct way that there's basically no better way to do it. In 1975, New York City was deeply in debt to the banks. The city conducted its usual process of selling off bonds in order to offset some of its debt, but that year, the banks didn't show up for the auction, leaving them in the lurch. A decision was made and a new committee was formed to manage the city's finances. Eight out of nine people on the committee were bankers. The entire thing was a setup. For the first time in our country's history, banks had control of one of our cities. Thousands of layoffs were conducted at the civic level. Nobody opposed the bankers. They had all become completely disillusioned and stopped thinking collective action could be effective. Instead, they were convinced that self-expression through art and music could help to change people's minds. But some people realized that this detachedness was causing them to lose touch with the reality of power. The revolution was postponed indefinitely. With no counterculture actively pushing back in the streets, the bankers and money people moved in and started running the place carte blanche. Donald Trump was one of these people. He realized that there was no money in building housing for regular people because the government grants had dried up. He announced that he was going to start buying up derelict buildings in New York City and transform them into luxury hotels and apartments. He negotiated the largest tax break in New York's history for building these places at $160 million and started to transform it into a city for the rich. At the same time in Damascus, Syria, Henry Kissinger, U.S. Secretary of State and President of Syria, Hafez al-Assad, initiated a vicious rivalry. Assad wanted to unite the Arab countries to stand up to the West. Kissinger, who started out as an expert in nuclear strategy and helped create the idea of mutually assured destruction, thought this would upset the global balance of power he believed in and set out to destroy the effort. Kissinger believed that history was not about political ideologies, but a struggle for power. He believed there was a delicate balance of power and that Assad's goal to unite the Arab nations would upset that balance and plunge the world into darkness. I believe that with all the dislocations we now experience, there also exists an extraordinary opportunity to form for the first time in history a truly global society carried by the principle of interdependence. And if we act wisely and with vision, I think we can look back to all this turmoil as the birth pangs of a more creative and better system. 
If we miss the opportunity, I think there's going to be chaos. Kissinger set about this by engaging in a technique called constructive ambiguity to divide the Arab nations and break alliances. He secretly persuaded Egypt to sign a peace agreement with Israel, but convinced Assad that he was working on a larger peace agreement among all Arab nations that would include negotiating Palestinian refugees being allowed to return to their homeland. The agreement with Egypt, however, didn't include the Palestinians. Assad didn't find out until it was too late. The deals were signed, and Kissinger had successfully broken up Arab nations and ruined his plans for uniting them. In the 1980s, the dream of the Soviet Union, that in isolation society would transform the Soviet people into a newer, better society, had failed. Instead, the people of the Soviet Union didn't believe in anything. Also, can we just talk about the irony of one of the architects of global destabilization? and the Cold War was named Kissinger. It's just like the least threatening, just like, hello, my name is Albert Stuff, and I'm here to sow intercontinental strife and racial tension that will result in the demise of all of humanity. Hello, my name is Arthur Puppies and Kitties, and I think that we should install a global political contract where we all realize that if one of us detonates nuclear weapons, that we will all de detonate nuclear weapons, and therefore we will eradicate all life from society in one giant nuclear holocaust. Please come to my talk this evening at the Sheraton. It's called An Hour of Puppies and Kitties, <laughs> where I will be discussing this theory at length. There will also be unicorn-themed cupcakes. But those little unicorns will have nuclear bombs for heads. It's quite adorable. The government and the technocrats of the Soviet Union became aware that their attempt to build a new kind of socialist society was failing. But instead of admitting it, they adopted a new kind of kayfabe reality. They just pretended like things were still going smoothly. Politicians and public speakers became a facade of acting like things were still going well despite the fact that it was clear to everyone that they definitely weren't. Because the average citizens of the Soviet Union couldn't imagine a way of doing it differently and didn't have the energy to fight for a better system, they were only left with the choice of playing into the kayfabe and pretending like they believe what the leaders were saying. You had a society in which, when constantly confronted with massive systemic and societal issues like economic collapse, violence, and cruelty in an unmistakable way that couldn't be ignored, the people in charge would just get up on stage or broadcast on the news and pretend like it was all fine. Or they'd distract the public with some kind of other unrelated thing and they would willingly allow themselves to be fooled by it in a way where they weren't actually fooled by it, they were just allowing themselves some kind of internal plausible deniability. Sound familiar? At the time, this phenomenon was named hypernormalization by a Soviet writer. You were so much a part of the system that it was impossible to see beyond it. The fakeness was hypernormal. It's so funny, that whole paragraph, I was like, yeah, this is just us too. Like, I don't, what are you talking about? Like, this is exactly, we we just do it with more double D fake breasts, bleach blonde hair, and uh, Daisy Duke shorts. Which I guess if you're going to have to do it, that's not a terrible way to do it. Yeah, full Jessica Simpson in the Dukes of Hazard remake. Full 1990s Baywatch slow motion running on the beach. It's a, you know, it's a slow motion running on the beach with Pamela Anderson's breasts bouncing in time to David uh, Hasselhoff's music, but over her breasts, it just says full existential despair. Or they just have a Verhoeven's toupee on them. Each one has a Verhoeven's toupee, yeah. <laughs> in the early 1980s, Ronald Reagan became the president of the United States, inheriting Henry Kissinger's simplistic philosophy of politics being a power struggle. He then further simplified that idea to being that politics on a global stage are a battle between good and evil. 
he entered into office on a promise of America becoming the moral crusader of the world in this battle, and that all global political efforts would be centered around protecting and perpetuating freedom throughout the globe. However, just as his presidency started to get going, there was a massive crisis. A camp of Palestinian refugees in Beirut were massacred by a Lebanese Christian army, and the Israelis had allowed it to happen. Reagan sent troops into Beirut, promising that they would remain neutral in the conflicts and simply wanted to help to mitigate the situation and retain the peace. However, Assad obviously saw them as a threat and set about a plan to get American troops out of Beirut permanently. He made an alliance with Ramallah Khamenei, an Iranian political and religious figure who had created the concept of a form of self-sacrifice on the battlefield known as the poor man's atomic bomb. Young Iranian soldiers would run into battle and deliberately kill themselves in order to secure a win. This never would have been done before he came along because suicide is strictly forbidden in the Quran. However, Khamenei tied the idea of self-sacrifice to an Islamic ritual of whipping yourself to mourn the loss of the Islamic leader Hussein. Khamenei positioned the idea of self-sacrifice on the battlefield as the ultimate expression of self-penance to this mourning ritual. Assad took this a step further by creating the idea of the suicide bomber, somebody who would strap explosives to themselves and walk into an enemy area, taking themselves out along with them. In October of 1983, two suicide bombers drove trucks into the U.S. Marine barracks in Beirut and detonated bombs, killing over 200 American Marines. The bombers were part of a new militant group called Hezbollah, many of whom were Iranian. However, they were under the control of the Syrian government. The suicide bombing had been to the benefit of Assad and Syria. In the mid-80s, the banks were getting more power financially, as well as an influence over the way that our country was run. They had learned from the situation in New York City in 1975 that in the vacuum of political feelings, they could take over and influence policy in society behind the scenes in a way that wasn't noticeable by the average citizen. Also around this time, massive corporations and the banks started working together and connecting via computer systems to share consumer and financial data, gaining massive digital stores of intelligence on every aspect of society. Author William Gibson noticed this and began producing a series of novels commenting on the phenomenon. He coined the term cyberspace, which was a digital realm where corporations and banks had control over every aspect of our lives by maintaining and manipulating our data. Whether it be the consumer and behavioral data owned by the corporations we gave our money, or by the banks that loaned and stored our money. In cyberspace as Gibson envisioned it, lives could be crushed, destroyed, erased, or manipulated by these corporate overlords seizing and utilizing our data against us. I didn't write this down, but I will once again say, sound familiar? In response to Gibson's bleak vision of a corporately run dystopian future, a group of technological utopian revolutionary thinkers decided to turn cyberspace into a reality that was the exact opposite of Gibson's prediction. Knowing that they couldn't do much to change the external world that was increasingly being controlled by corporations, they wanted to build a new internal world within cyberspace that could become a utopia of free information, free expression, and individuality. These utopian thinkers started their movement in what would eventually come to be called Silicon Valley. These were the people who had inherited the idea of thinkers like Timothy Leary, who believed that the usage in the culture surrounding psychedelic drugs could offer an awakening and a freedom from the political military industrial complex nightmare, who believed that the usage and the culture surrounding psychedelic drugs could offer an awakening and a freedom from the political military industrial complex nightmare that we were living in. These people, however, believed that the same thing could be done by retreating into a digital world. These were the early stages of what would become the internet. By the early 90s, cyberspace thinkers like John Barlow, who had been a fan of the teachings of Timothy Leary, were doing things like hosting the Cyberthon. This was essentially a convention full of a bunch of weird nerds putting on VR headsets and pretending like they were entering into a lawnmower man-esque digital playground. Barlow wrote a manifesto called the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, which essentially told all politicians and corporations to stay out of cyberspace. Governments of the industrial world 
Cyberspace does not lie within your borders. We are creating a world where anyone, anywhere, may express his or her beliefs, no matter how singular, without fear of being coerced into silence or conformity. I declare the global social space we are building to be naturally independent of the tyrannies you seek to impose on us. We will create a civilization of the mind in cyberspace. May it be more humane and fair than the world your governments have made before. It's begun. This is the key to a new order. This code disk means freedom. Two underground hackers, Fiber Optic, spelled P-H-I-B-E-R-O-P-T-I-K, and Acid Freak, spelled the normal way that those words are spelled. Isn't Acid Freak one of the characters in Hackers? Oh no, Acid Washed? Acid... Acid Freak. I think Acid Freak might be one of the characters, like, handles in... These guys were, like, huge, high-profile, famous hackers in the 90s, so th there's no way that they didn't... They weren't inspired by them in, in some way, or were aware of them when they wrote that movie. They knew that this wasn't the true reality of cyberspace. They knew, like William Gibson predicted, that cyberspace was just another lever of power for these massive corporations and banks. To prove this point, that corporations did indeed have control in the cyber world, they hacked into the computer system of a corporation called TRW, who had built the systems that ran the Cold War for the US military, but were now maintaining a computer system that gathered up the credit data of millions of Americans to determine credit scores. They took Barlow's credit history from the TRW system and published it online. They believed that Barlow's idea of a cyberspace utopia was actually the perfect camouflage for the corporations and banks to move in and build a new way to control society that was beyond politics and unlike anything we'd ever seen before. Colonel Mamar Gaddafi took control of Libya in a military coup on September 1st, 1969. He hated the Western world for their history of colonization, and his ultimate goal was to challenge the Western world and level the global playing field. By the 1980s, he had completely isolated himself from any potential allies with his radical ideas. He had a design for an alternative to communism or socialism that most of his potential allies thought was crazy, and so he had no friends and no global influence whatsoever. He became the perfect figure for the Reagan administration to cast as the villain in a complete completely kayfabe moral crusade that was meant to bounce them back from the failure of Beirut. They decided they wanted to stay out of the complicated realities of the real Arab nation conflicts and instead craft a fictional struggle with a fake villain that they could hypothetically win against while controlling the situation. They chose Gaddafi and Libya for their lack of involvement in any real-world conflicts and for Gaddafi's lack of allies. And in turn, Gaddafi gladly played along because it fed his ego, made him a famous global figure and in his mind reignited the possibility of his battle against the Western world. When two terrorist attacks in Rome and Vienna happened simultaneously in December of 1985, five Americans being among the casualties, Reagan was pressured by Congress to act. He chose to blame the attack squarely on Gaddafi. European security services who had investigated the attacks determined that Libya wasn't involved at all, and that it had actually been perpetrated by the Syrian government. Americans say that the attack at Rome airport was organized by Gaddafi, not by Damascus. No, what we, do you we, say? We, 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 we don't have any, any evidence. You have no supporting evidence? Supporting such a, such a uh, affirmation. The only evidence we have show, shows a, a, a Syrian connection. You say that it was Libya, and the president said the evidence of, of Libya's culpability was irrefutable. Yeah. 
But the Italian authorities to whom I've spoken say emphatically on the record that their investigations have shown that it was entirely masterminded by Syria. I don't agree with that at all. Well, they've interrogated yes, the surviving uh, terrorists. I must just say I don't agree with that. But you've no evidence that Libya was in on the planning either. Well, our you? evidence on Libya is uh, circumstantial but very strong. But why does the president then say it's irrefutable if you call it circumstantial? Well, people can be convicted and sentenced in our courts on circumstantial evidence. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, as a big part of the whole purpose of going through this whole thing is I feel like while I, I'm not in any way saying that there haven't been some major shifts in our political and social climate in recent years and that things are not demonstrably different in ways, I do think that there is a misconception, not even a misconception, but just like the way that people just go to the exaggerated extremes of people tend to exaggerate when they talk to one another. That's just how it works. When you talk to somebody and you say that something took a long time, you say that it took a million years. Whenever whenever you relate a story about getting into a conflict, you build it up as being this bigger thing than probably the smaller, more understated version of what it actually was. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just how we behave. But the unfortunate byproduct of that is that online in social media spaces, the sort of like fleeting conversational exaggeration that we do by default and naturally gets preserved in amber. And you cannot extrapolate tone or nuance in text or even really in video when you're talking. And so these exaggerations that are a normal part of how we communicate that just in the moment we say them, they're they're gone forever. We just we're just talking and then what we said is just it's in the past and there's no record of it, but it's preserved on social media and these posts. And it happens to be the stuff that gets the most traction in the algorithm. So the way that we tend to exaggerate things it becomes the way that we perceive the world because of this dynamic between our natural inclination for exaggeration and then the way that social media strips tone from things and then preserves everything we say as a, a permanent fixture. And so I think one of the one of the results of that is we always go around saying, oh, the world has gone to hell. Everybody says that for different reasons. More conservative people say that the world has gone to hell of the, the the elasticity of moral values in the country, that these like nuclear family moral values are not being upheld. And we tend to say that the world is going to hell because we see like the these murmurs of, of issues like fascism and white supremacy on the rise and things like that, which is 100% happening and 100% true. But the thing that I think gets lost in the conversation is that this is not necessarily a new thing. It is a it is the background hum of our society that's been happening for decades as the the global the, the political powers at play in our country and many other countries in the world intentionally use human nature to stoke fear and to craft false realities and to inundate us with propaganda to trick us into going along with narratives and rallying behind causes that are potentially not real or bad or destructive in some way. And that social media has just amplified that and made it to where nobody can ignore it anymore. I mentioned that earlier in the episode and kind of the, the, the opening intro 
is like these things are still these things have always been going on, but we just cannot ignore them anymore because they are shoved in our faces and we can see the receipts at all times. The way that that the way that 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 U.S. that that Reagan administration official was questioned and his response was dog shit. He was just like, I don't agree with that. And he's they said that they talked to the surviving terrorists and they said that they were definitely Syrian. And he's like, oh, that is just that's something that I don't agree with. That's, I'm just going to say that. I'm just going to say that I don't agree with that. That's such a bullshit. It's obviously bullshit. But the thing is, is that number one, not many people probably saw that interview. And number two, they saw it once and then they never saw it again. And it just went disappeared into the ether. Unless somebody replayed that footage, nobody was around. Nobody could like TiVo shit or tape things or make copies of it. And it, it came on TV one time and then that was it. And also that was a British broadcast. And the UK is known for actually being more aggressive with questioning politicians, whereas in the United States, we're not. We don't put the screws to politicians as hard as other countries do. As a matter of fact, literally the reason why Fox News was created was because Republican private interests and lobbyists were angry at the hardball questions that um, more neutral and left leaning news organizations were giving to Republican politicians but they still wanted them to be able to have a platform for speaking in the media. So they literally created Fox News as entirely a an entity that Republicans could go onto and have a platform to speak, but where they would not be given hardball questions. So we're very lax and unaggressive on questioning our politicians. But now with the advent of social media, these things are shoved in our face every day. And whenever a politician or some a celebrity says something like that or has a horrible response to a question that do- isn't convincing whatsoever, everybody can watch that over and over again and share it with their friends and pass it around until everybody's seen it. And it, it's just become this feedback loop and this snowball effect. And so we now have this sense that everything has just gotten worse and worse. When in reality, these this is just the natural progression of how things have gone for decades. Repu- uh, you know, uh, politicians were always just lying and then having horrible excuses for their lies and not even doing a very good job of covering up for them. And we always were just letting them get away with it. It just wasn't as obvious. Gaddafi, for his part, didn't deny the accusations, but instead embraced them and threatened more attacks. When another terrorist attack happened in West Berlin that killed one American soldier, the Reagan administration claimed they had intelligence linking Gaddafi to the attack as well as dozens of others and Reagan ordered the bombing of Libya. However, this order stalled because people within the American government were worried that intelligence analysts were being pressured to craft this narrative against Gaddafi in Libya that simply wasn't true. They were taking Gaddafi's own rants about him and presenting it as facts. The US government and Gaddafi were working in tandem to craft a fictional reality that was not composed of anything factual, but rather a sequence of events that satisfied an emotional and moral truth that large groups of people desired to buy into for various reasons. Analyst was certainly, I'm convinced, uh, pressured into uh, developing a prima facie case against uh, the Libyan government. From the um, somewhat incoherent ravings of a maniac, um, both interceptions of a clandestine nature, interceptions of a uh, uh, open radio broadcast or whatever, um, as well as other sources, quotations of, of his, that one can assemble a um, neatly put together package demonstrating that the man had uh, 
violent interests against the United States and uh, its European. In April 1985, U.S. military attacked Libya based on literally nothing but a fictional narrative based on Gaddafi's self-aggrandizing kayfabe rants. They went after multiple targets, including Gaddafi's own house. Gaddafi went on the news and claimed that the attack had killed his adoptive daughter and it injured two of his children, and that the attack had been concentrated specifically on killing the children. This may have been a lie because there were rumors for decades afterward that his adoptive daughter hadn't died, but the attack actually had killed several children in the surrounding area. He used the opportunity in the spotlight to promote his own version of a government that was an alternate to democracy and communism called the Third Way. A theory that everyone had basically agreed was crazy and not worth even acknowledging was now being taken seriously on a global scale. From this point on, all of politics and publicly traded information about the goings-on of the world stage basically became professional wrestling. In the late 1980s, there was an increase in the number of reports of UFO sightings. A powerful conspiracy theory started circulating that aliens had finally made contact with Earth and that what everyone was seeing were these alien crafts. UFO believers revealed that they had uncovered secret government documents that confirmed that aliens had visited Earth but had been hidden for 20 years. However, there's a possibility that these, quote, uncovered documents were actually fakes that had been intentionally leaked by the U.S. government to serve as a smokescreen. They were testing experimental new weapons designed to protect the U.S. superpower against what they believed at the time was a more powerful Soviet Union. The government wanted to keep the weapons a secret, but couldn't fully conceal them from being spotted. So they chose people to leak these documents in order to spread this theory. The point wasn't for anybody to believe that this conspiracy was true. The point was for some people to believe it was true, go on a campaign pushing the theory, which would in turn muddy the waters of people theorizing that they were government weapons. This would make the truth hard to separate from fiction, hiding the truth even better than a real cover-up. Paul Benowitz claimed that he was given government documents detailing the existence of aliens after spotting the aircraft on an airbase in New Mexico. However, years later, Richard Doty, a former special agent for the U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations, claimed that he had been assigned to creating the documents and feeding them to Benowitz and other ufologists as a hoax. The Reagan administration created a new type of technique in governing the country called perception management. They were blurring the lines between fact and fiction, twisting the national narrative to whatever whim they needed to get the American public to believe what they wanted to believe. The long-term result of this was the erosion of trust in the government and a validation of the idea that conspiracy theories were real. Reality became less and less of an important factor in American politics. It wasn't what was real uh, that was driving anything or the facts driving anything. It was how you could turn those facts or twist the facts or even make up the facts to make your opponent look bad. So perception management became a, 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 a device and the facts could be twisted. Anything could be anything. It becomes how can you manipulate the American people. And in the process, reality becomes what? Reality becomes simply something to play with to achieve that end. Reality is not important in this context. Reality is simply something that you handle. See where I'm fucking building with this shit? I see where you're going. The fall of the Soviet Union in the 1980s showed the world, and particularly U.S. politicians, one thing. In our increasingly complicated society, you could no longer change the world with politics. Things had become too complicated and interconnected. Technology had become too much of a threat of danger. It was now impossible to steer the world into a brighter future or predict how your actions would pan out. As the German political thinker Ulrich Beck said at the time, Politics would now become nothing more than risk management. People trying to just make sure we didn't head into certain disaster. It just became about trying to avoid the constant risks our convoluted society presented. 
Attempts at developing artificial intelligence began as early as the 1960s. In an attempt to develop computers that could think, scientists attempted to literally figure out the complicated set of rules that governed the way a human being thought and replicate them with code. Over the next several years, they basically discovered that, at least at the time, that was literally impossible. The human mind is too complicated, and attempting to systematically map out its processes and functions in order to replicate them with computers is like starting in a room full of a thousand doors that you need to explore, only to discover that each door has another thousand doors on the other side of it. It was so hopeless that, by the late 60s, a lot of scientists had basically just given up on the pursuit. Joseph Weizenbaum, a computer scientist at MIT, got so frustrated with the impossibility of cracking the AI code that he decided to build a parody of artificial intelligence as a form of satire. In the process, he accidentally discovered the future of it. Again, deeply human. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of... There's this whole story, it just rings with these sort of like contradictory couplets it's like we we hate jews because they're murdering christians but the god that we worship is jewish that we were dedicated to hunting pedophiles on a website where there are welcomed pedophiles that are allowed to conduct their pedophilia activities um that that there's just there's so many versions of that contradictory binary in, in throughout this whole story for whatever reason. In 1966, as a particularly nerdy satirical joke, Weizenbaum created a computer, quote, therapist called Eliza that was basically exactly like one of those chatbots you used to be able to talk to on AOL Instant Messenger. It was a simple computer program designed to take questions you asked it, parse the text, and fit your words into predetermined responses that were basically just repeating your questions back to you in the form of a different question to create an endlessly circular loop of conversation. However, upon having his assistant test out the program, after talking with it back and forth for about five minutes, she strangely found herself opening up and confiding deeply personal information with the chatbot and finding the way it reflected her confessions back to her in the form of vague questions to be oddly therapeutic. Eventually, she asked Weizenbaum to leave the room so she could continue talking to Eliza. Weizenbaum saw the same phenomenon happen with every other person he allowed to use the program. He and his peers realized that human beings, ultimately, want to experience their own thoughts and feelings mirrored back at them. They found the process of looking into the mirror provided by the chatbot's mimicking responses to be cathartic and fulfilling. And in that moment, he realized that the future of AI wasn't programming a computer to think like a human. It was feeding a computer as much data and information about as many people as possible so that it could start to predict how people were going to behave and start to be able to anticipate their needs and wants quicker and quicker until it could satisfy them before we even knew what we wanted. This discovery would essentially shape the rest of history and define the last 15 years of our society. You ever sit there and be like, man, I could uh, I could really do with some rods right now, some nice Snyder's <laughs> pretzel rods. And then you pull out your phone and you start lo- scrolling through Facebook and it's like, Snyder's pretzel rods. Pick yours up at your local 7-Eleven now, Dave Baker. That was all on account of old Weizenbaum, old dirty Weizenbaum. Fucking Weizenbaum, man. Laying the, laying the knowledge bomb on us. See what I did there? See what I did? We got wise and bombed. Bro, I'm so wise right now. Blucked and bombed. The Dave Baker and Andrew Price story. <laughs> Politics slowly phased out as the primary governance of nations. It became a cog in a larger machine of surveilling people, collecting information about them, and a large network of megacorporations, banks, special interest groups, 
and lobbyist organizations using that information to develop technologies, services, products, media, and legislation designed to simultaneously make people feel safe and comfortable, and also to confuse and overwhelm them with a never-ending stream of conflicting information so that they'd basically disengage from what was going on around them and focus on themselves and the safety of their small bubble. People no longer wanted to hear about the complexities of politics on the world stage, and in that vacuum, politicians realized that they could better capture the imagination and votes by identifying a single boogeyman as the source of all evil in the world, rather than evil being a collective and systemic network of interconnecting situations that were too overwhelming for the average person to understand. Reagan had created this technique in the 80s by focusing on Gaddafi as the mastermind behind all of Americans' problems. And while he had the world focused on him, the evolution of the usage of suicide bombers for war was able to grow and mutate throughout the world and gain popularity throughout many extremist groups. 9-11 doesn't happen without Reagan starting up his phony kayfabe war on Libya in the 1980s. Also by the time of the September 11, 2001 terror attacks, politicians had perfected Reagan's technique of focusing all of the world's complicated global issues on a single villain. American presidents essentially became professional wrestlers, starting rivalries with the heels of the world. Their states of the union were like cutting promos. When the Twin Towers fell, America and Britain decided to make Saddam Hussein the new big bad of the week. And the latest storyline was going to be America and Britain joining forces to go to war with Iraq. And just to be clear, Saddam Hussein was also perpetrating human rights atrocities and was a sort of global bad actor. He just wasn't necessarily the actual villain of 9-11, as we obviously realize. In order to justify a war, the narrative was that they were harboring weapons of mass destruction violating several global peace treaties. The smoking gun came in 2002 when a member of MI6 claimed that the agency had discovered an informant that claimed they had direct access to Saddam Hussein's secret chemical weapons program. They described an operation where several types of chemical weapons were being loaded into bead-like linked glass containers. This was all that then-Prime Minister Tony Blair needed and immediately called for British intervention in Iraq. However, other agents at MI6 quickly realized two things. Chemical weapons were not stored in glass containers, and the bead-like interconnected glass spheres the source was describing were from a scene in the 1996 Michael Bay film The Rock. So, yeah, the, this informant had just gone to MI6 with a fake story that they based on The Rock. With Nick Cage's, Nick Cage's acting was directly responsible for the Iraq War. Yeah, I, I actually just listened to a whole thing um about this on Slow Burn. If anybody is interested, the most recent season of the Slate original podcast network, uh, Slow Burn, is all about how we got duped into a war in Iraq. And it's uh, sad and depressing and fucked up. And there's a whole episode about the guy who was the primary source of information that, in air quotes, believed. Very sad. Very sad. And it was Nick Cage. It was Nick Cage. Actually, do you know the do you know the James Bond, The Rock connection? Do you know that story? I know that it's supposed to be spiritual successor where it's like implied that Sean Connery is James Bond who has been at some point imprisoned for his... Yeah, basically the movie is like a stealth James Bond sequel where the character he plays, the name he's referred to in the, in the movie isn't is obviously not the character's real name. His fictional biography lines up with James Bond's biography. A couple of the anecdotes he tells are very similar to James Bond missions and uh, it's very wink, wink, nudge. This is a James Bond movie we're making. And we got the guy who's playing James Bond to not be James Bond. Definitely not. For legal reasons, he's not James Bond. But also, Loki, he's James Bond. Yeah, fucking Kevin McClory ain't producing this shit. Yeah. Yeah. 
But it didn't matter. America and Britain took this fake claim from a sham source and ran with it all the way to the battlefield. Who cares that he literally had nothing to do with the attacks or that there was never any proof that Iraq had WMDs? It stopped being about the truth decades ago, and the only thing that mattered anymore was making people feel safe. War was started with Iraq, but it wasn't going well. Syria, now ruled by Assad's son Bashar, decided to utilize this opportunity to continue his father's campaign for revenge against the Americans. Syria started helping armed radical militants to get across the border into Iraq, with experts calculating that 90% of all suicide bombings in Iraq during the first few years of the Iraq War were committed by non-Iraqi foreigners. American President George W. Bush and British Prime Minister Tony Blair were looking for a way to run damage control on this war that wasn't going particularly well, and that the people at home were starting to suspect was a sham. So they decided to face-turn the global terrorist boogeyman that Reagan had created in the 1980s. They decided to team up with Gaddafi. The West was going to reinvent Gaddafi in order to try and retroactively prove that Reagan's campaign against him in the 80s had worked, that announcing him as a global threat of terrorism and focusing war efforts against him had actually been successful in reforming him and Libya, to convince Western people that the same could be done with Hussein and Iraq. And why did Gaddafi go along with this? The same reason he embraced Reagan turning him into a supervillain back in the 80s. Libya had basically become a global outcast after having been blamed for the bombing committed by Syria in the 1980s, and the U.S. had imposed sanctions on them that had crumbled their economy. Gaddafi saw this as an opportunity to be allowed a seat back at the table and to reclaim some of his worldwide fame. Blair and Bush held press conferences saying that Gaddafi had announced that Libya would disclose and dismantle all their weapons of mass destruction, and that they would commit themselves to spreading democracy. But in order to reform Gaddafi and turn him into an ally of the West and a hero of democracy, it was going to take more than politicians. This effort would require all of Western culture, politicians, journalists, PR agents, academics, and musicians would all need to play a role in order to pull this off. All of culture, including the people who thought they were serving as counterculture and as a protest to the war in Iraq, would help in this effort even if it was unwittingly. It was the culmination of the ideas of hypernormalization, that nobody could change anything, and that we all just play a role in maintaining the fake status quo that exists in our world. We're all just a series of checks and balances in mitigating this false reality that is being generated to continue making people feel safe at the expense of any kind of real progressive social change. Tony Blair went and met with Gaddafi. He was interviewed on the news, and the message was being broadcast all over the world that the West had convinced him to dismantle his WMDs and join the, quote, community of civilized nations. However, in reality, Libya never had any WMDs at all. Their nuclear weapons development program had ended decades ago for lack of funding and never produced anything. He just had to pretend like there were all of these nukes and chemical weapons being stored in Libya that they were going to destroy. And the U.S. and Britain had to pretend like they were overseeing this process and that it was actually happening. The U.S. and Britain told Gaddafi that if he admitted that Libya had committed the Lockerbie bombing in the 80s, that they would lift sanctions on Libya. Gaddafi admitted to the bombing, despite the fact that most intelligence experts were convinced that Libya had nothing to do with it. American PR companies were hired to fly to Libya and create several video series having Gaddafi appear on camera with other world thinkers from Western countries to reframe him as an intellectual. Several uprisings were springing up across the globe to overthrow the fascist dictatorships that the U.S. and the West had previously supported. However, the idea of overthrowing dictatorships and spreading democracy was good messaging for the U.S. during these never-ending wars that had been raging in Iraq and Afghanistan since the early 2000s. So the West came out in support of them. These uprisings had been organized on the internet over platforms like Facebook. Hundreds of thousands of people meeting in private Facebook groups and plotting out protests and riots. The internet had the power to organize people to do things in the real world at a massive scale with real-life consequences like death for the first time. 
And when an uprising happened in Libya to overthrow Gaddafi, even though the West had turned him into a friend publicly just a few months ago, they decided it would be better for business to turn him into a villain again and support the uprisings and regime change. Then, in 2011, attempting to escape an onslaught of rebel forces, Gaddafi and a large convoy of his men fled his estate. The U.S. military spotted this convoy and sent a drone controlled from a warehouse in Las Vegas. They fired a missile at one of the cars in the convoy, destroying it and bringing the convoy to a halt. Gaddafi fled on foot but was apprehended and murdered in the streets by the rebels. The effect of the Iraq war was powerful on Western culture. Many Americans and Britons felt like they had been lied to about the motives of the war and the existence of WMDs. The PR campaign to reframe Gaddafi as somebody the West had reformed just made the whole situation even more confusing. And despite massive protests and anti-war demonstrations, it had happened anyway. This caused large swaths of people to turn away from politics, to stop caring and stop paying attention because they felt powerless, like nothing they did could actually change anything. This marked another major turning point in the average person disengaging from politics altogether. And I think now that we're getting more contemporary, I think all of us now listening to this really can relate to where we're at here, where we had this weird looming thing over our heads of this Iraq war that was happening. We're all in the shadow of 9-11. We all feel this weird fear that I'm assuming was instilled in people during the Cold War, but maybe even more powerful because there had been a legitimate attack that there was this darkness occurring in the world, but we were all separated from it. Like the the Iraq war never really affected any anybody, any common person, especially kids, us, whenever we were teenagers, when this was happening, that was just a thing that you were aware of and you would sit around with your friends and talk shit about President Bush and say these political things, but it never actually really affected us at all. And our parents, for the most part, I'm speaking for myself, and maybe there are some many listeners who had politically engaged parents, but I feel like a lot of people, particularly probably in middle America, their parents weren't didn't ever talk about politics other than like generic things, but otherwise had no insight into the political landscape, had no opinions on anything that was happening other than a generic like we're patriots support the troops type thing type vibe. And I think we all relate to this stage where everybody just kind of disengaged from politics and we just weren't talking about it anymore. And it was just happening in the background. And we slowly learned to exist with that cognitive dissonance where you see these conflicts through television screens with sand and camouflage and people firing off AR-15s and mortar explosions. And then you just you go, my Lord, and then you just turn off your TV and then you just go live a completely apolitical life. These people retreated into the carefree world of the internet. By this time in the mid-2000s, the artificial intelligence that had been accidentally developed in the 60s had advanced greatly. Large computer databases were dedicated to analyzing data in order to predict the behaviors of human beings. These databases would ingest massive amounts of user data collected from websites such as Google that are constantly recording the things you do on their sites, what you search for, what you click, what you watch, what you buy, and then use that data to create models that can predict what people will do. However, these models would mimic a very simplistic version of a human being stripped away of all of their complexities and boiled down to only the most broad and essential behaviors. This was great for figuring out key elements of human behavior to predict in order to help serve products, services, and content to people online, but it had one major drawback. Jaron Lanier, one of the earliest computer philosophers, said that because the models for predicting human behavior were so simple, they were essentially cartoon versions of what people were interested in. And because of this, they would only show people a cartoon version of the world, a perspective of events 
facts and other people that would be boiled down to its most simplistic black and white version, free of nuance or consideration of the granular details that went into anything. Think of how when you watch one video on a certain topic on YouTube, perhaps just out of curiosity, how your feed will immediately fill up with dozens of other recommended videos on the same exact topic, or how if you buy a new toaster online, you'll suddenly start seeing tons of ads for toasters on every website you visit. And I think there's many examples of this for me, and I'm sure for you and the listener, but one specific one that just comes to mind is I had learned, like circumstantially, I I learned out of context from a Twitter post, this story of how Vic Magana or whatever, however you say his name, the voice actor had been accused, yeah, had been accused of sexual harassment. I saw it out of context on a tweet. So it was like, oh, I I got the context of what was being said, but I hadn't actually seen the story. And he's like the voice actor for Ed Elric and Full Metal Alchemist. And he also plays... He also plays Kirk in the Star Trek a fan series. Star Trek continues. Star Trek voyages. So it's it's the the he's the best fan Kirk for lack of a better term. Yeah, and so I went to YouTube and just typed in Vic Mignogna or whatever accusations or what, whatever I had typed in because I was just trying to see an explainer on what had happened just to really quickly quickly learn about it. And so I watched this explainer. And literally, once I clicked the home page, like the the home button to go back to my main feed, my my suggested feed was just filled with why Vic Mignogna is innocent, like why the accusations of Vic Mignogna are lies, all these things like that. It was just filled with that. It wasn't like it wasn't a gradual thing. I watched the video and then I went back to my home feed and it the whole feed was just filled with those. It immediately just snapped to try to meet and anticipate what I would want to do next in my consumption journey that I had started on YouTube. And I'm not somebody who's particularly vulnerable to being radicalized or deceived with misinformation. I went to school for journalism and I am somebody who's obsessed with researching things and verifying information across multiple sources and digging to the, the the original source of things, journals and studies and making sure to validate everything that I'm reading to gain an understanding of what the as close to the objective truth as possible. So to me, that's just like, oh, this is fascinating that this is the way this algorithm is functioning. But the the scary thing or the terrifying thing is to see that happening and then just imagine uh, a 13 year old boy doing the exact same thing. That's just that's terrifying to me. And the way that the way that the algorithm is in control of feeding children information based on what is the most salacious, most attention grabbing version of a perspective on any given piece of information. It was essentially feeding us the same binary us versus them, good versus evil version of the world that had been championed by politicians throughout the 80s and 90s in a never ending feedback loop of confirmation bias and reinforcement. And this might be okay if these models truly were just working towards the goal of feeding you things you were interested in and entertaining you by delivering you things you want before you even know you want them. But what if other people with ulterior motives for owning your attention got control of these tools with zero regulation. This led to the explosion of social media on the internet. MySpace, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and so much else. Throughout the 80s and 90s, cyberspace had been thought of as this abstract digital world that you could escape to 
But in the 2000s, with the advent of social media, where people around the world would upload thousands of pictures and videos of themselves onto platforms, showing off their lives, sharing private intimate details, cyberspace began to just become a highly curated copy of the real world. A familiar place where everything was like it was in your real life, except only the good parts. The parts that you wanted to see and wanted others to see. That early version of AI from the 1960s that started with that satirical chatbot program slowly morphed into complex algorithms on social media that studied your data, slowly learned your behaviors and desires, and curated what you saw on them to anticipate and fit your exact wants and get rid of anything that didn't fit into that. As Jaron Lanier had predicted, these algorithms started crafting our digital world for us and only showing us a cartoon version of real life. Because the algorithms were designed to study our behavior and anticipate our wants and desires and interests, people only heard and saw what they loved and nothing they didn't want to hear. And as the years progressed and social media became more and more of an integral aspect of how people get information and perceive the world, this turned into everybody retreating into their own private pocket realities. Tiny bubbles where the information we received about what was happening in the world was custom shaped to never offend us or show us a view of the world that we weren't prepared to accept. Objective reality splintered off into billions of tinier, unique, custom realities that perceive the world very differently. Truth died. Nobody could agree anymore on one version of reality. Throughout the 2000s and 2010s, the fact that this was happening wasn't readily apparent to anybody, nor did it have any kind of immediate disastrous effect on daily life. Remember, most people had completely disengaged with politics during the Iraq War. Because the average person was largely apolitical and resigned to just believing whatever generic political ideology that they had been raised to believe, we didn't immediately realize that this rift in reality was growing bigger and bigger each day, or that we were all splintering off so far into different microscopic bubbles of perception. But social media news feeds were increasingly excluding any information that might challenge any one person's pre-existing beliefs. And maybe this might not have been so bad. The death of monoculture, no longer needing to buy into one narrative curated and fed to you by the controlling interest. Perhaps we could have broken off into our own little pockets of culture and society could have transitioned into a more village-based system like it used to be, but in a decidedly more digital way. However, there was one problem. William Gibson was right. These algorithms that were slowly shaping our realities were being controlled by a few large corporations who had a vested interest in keeping us on their platforms, keeping us angry, keeping us fighting, and keeping us believing whatever narrative that was most profitable for them at any given time. This was a paradigm that was destined to head towards a pretty disastrous result. There was a powder keg primed to explode. It just needed somebody to light the fuse. And regardless of what your political beliefs are, that person was Donald Trump. And honestly, depending on what you believe, you could perceive this as a good or a bad thing. Some people believe that he helped to divide the nation, and some people believe he woke us up to dark realities. But regardless of how you perceive it, in my mind, there is one specific objective truth about how Donald Trump spent his presidency. Most politicians are and have been dedicated to maintaining this global kayfabe. This hyper-normalization of a false reality that tries its best to round off all of our world's edges and keep everything layered in a thick lamination, comforting alternative truths preserved in amber and unmovable. Every aspect of the way our society and political system worked and still largely works is dedicated to making everyone feel like everything is fine and working properly while the dark realities go on behind a curtain. And... For better or fucking worse, Trump wasn't. In fact, he got elected specifically because he didn't care about maintaining the kayfabe. And as we'll find out, not at all to say that he was dedicated to exposing the truth and bringing injustice and corruption to light. To the contrary, his primary goal was to establish a different, new kayfabe that was decidedly steered more in his favor and had the added bonus of appearing as if it was to expose the truth and bring injustice to light. 
But regardless of how malignant his goals were, or how damaging his rhetoric was, or how much it was also rooted in lies and misinformation, it still accomplished one specific thing. It broke the spell of our 40-year ambivalence. It made everybody start paying attention to what the fuck was going on in the world again. Many people for the first time in their entire lives, and almost like sleeper cell agents who had just had the secret code whispered into our ears, we all suddenly, quote, woke up looked around, and for the first time ever, realized just how far apart we all were, how little common ground we had, how massively wide the gulf was between our individual perceptions of truth and reality were, and how seemingly impossible it would ever be to coexist again. In that new normal, with two opposing sides of a moral paradigm convinced that the other was not only wrong, not only the enemy, but straight up evil, it was only a matter of time before some kind of ideological war erupted. Throughout the years, that massive division was exploited and utilized by many people for many different purposes. It was used to algorithmically serve us content on our favorite social media platforms, inspired us to vote, and the gap was slowly widened between us. Things like the Occupy Wall Street and Tea Party movements, two largely pointless and ineffective attempts at an awareness-based form of social change, only served to make us increasingly aware of the fact that we were living in completely different realities with very little ideological, moral, or intellectual crossover. By the time that Donald Trump became president, the American people were open and vulnerable to some kind of major radicalizing event, something that would finally speak the quiet parts out loud and acknowledge that the opposing forces in the country had become so polarized that there was little likelihood we could ever cooperate or even coexist again. And lo and behold, QAnon was there to fill that vacuum. In the wake of the mass hypernormalization of American culture, there were a few key events that led to the induction of QAnon into society. According to the QAnon Resource Guide written by James A. Beverly with Annette Johnson and Rick Anderson, this is the definitive timeline that led up to the very first Q drop. 1999. Italian authors Roberto Bui, Giovanni Catabrigia, Federico Guglielmi, and Luca De Meo, writing under the collective pseudonym Luther Blissett, released Q, a postmodern historical fiction novel that takes place in the 16th century Europe, that follows an Anabaptist's radical protagonist as he joins various movements and uprisings that come as a result from Protestant Reformation, all the while being chased by a spy of the Roman Catholic Church known as Q. Many believe that whoever originally created QAnon borrowed the name and multiple plot lines from this book in crafting the character's general mythology. 1999. That same year, Richard Lotax Kianka created the first ever online secret community, Something Awful, a precursor to the template for internet message boards like 4chan and 8chan. 1999. Later that same year, Hiroyuki Nishimura founded 2Channel, a Japanese image board inspired by sites like Something Awful, and created as a place for Japanese citizens stymied by oppressive Japanese censorship laws to create and post anything they want without fear of being silenced. This site was the direct inspiration for the eventual creation of 4chan. February 2003. Christopher Moot Poole creates 4chan, an American spin-off of 2channel, a hub for free speech absolutism-minded anonymous internet posters. 2004. American businessman and internet service provider Jim Watkins starts hosting 2channel on his servers due to attempts by the Japanese government to have it taken down. October 22nd, 2013. After the Gamergate movement, a community of misogynist trolls launching targeted harassment campaigns at female video game developers and journalists got banned from 4chan for crossing too many lines, 4chan user Frederick Brennan, disillusioned by the board's failure to live up to its free speech promises, created his own version of the site, called 8chan, 
a clone of 4chan with even less moderation or community guideline policies in place to prevent hate speech, calls for violence, or trading of illicit materials. The Gamergate people moved to 8chan, and the site became popular. February 19th, 2014. Jim Watkins takes over ownership of 2channel. October 2014. Frederick Brennan decides to sell 8chan to Jim Watkins. He moves to the Philippines, where Jim Watkins is located, and starts working as the head programmer on the site, while Jim Watkins' son, Ron Watkins, takes over admin duties. July 10th, 2015. Vote, a right-leaning alternative to Reddit, launches. It'll eventually serve as a major hub for Q Talk. 2016. FBI Anon and HLI Anon, two precursors to QAnon that basically did exactly what QAnon ended up doing and likely heavily inspired the character, started posting similarly cryptic clues about behind the scenes secrets going on within the government. April 2016. Frederick Brennan exits 8chan, leaving it in the hands of the Watkins father and son. July 10th, 2016. The murder of Seth Rich occurs. Rich was a DNC staffer who was murdered while walking to his home in Washington, D.C. at night. The events surrounding his murder are unexplained and no killer can be caught. A conspiracy theory would eventually take shape that Rich was a secret Trump ally who had infiltrated the DNC to gather intelligence. He had been the one to have leaked the Podesta emails, and he was murdered by the deep state. October 2016. WikiLeaks drops the Podesta emails. November 2016. The Pizzagate conspiracy theory is born, and Comet Ping Pong faces weeks of targeted harassment. December 4th, 2016. Edgar Madison Welsh walks into Comet Ping Pong, fires three shots from an AR-15, unsuccessfully searches the building for a hidden child dungeon, and then surrenders to police. Early 2017. CIA Anon and CIA Intern, two of the other Q precursors, purported to be governmental insiders leaking information about the good versus evil political battle happening behind the scenes, start posting. March 25th, 2017. Welsh pleads guilty. June 22nd, 2017. Welsh is sentenced to four years in prison. August 2017. WH Insider Anon, yet another precursor to Q, leaks secrets and starts posting on 4chan. October 5th, 2017. During a photo op at the White House with members of the U.S. military, Donald Trump made a weird cryptic comment to journalists about how it was the calm before the storm. When asked to clarify what he meant by this, he wouldn't. October 28th, 2017. Q makes his first drop on 4chan. Now that we understand everything that's led up to the inception of QAnon and why it was likely able to take such a stranglehold over the American consciousness, we can now fully explore the complete timeline of events in this bizarre, terrifying saga, which we will begin in next week's installment of the Deep Cuts QAnon series. Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com and the Dead Boy Detectives.